Hello friends and welcome to The Natural High, which is a podcast dedicated to the pursuit of happiness in all its glorious forms. This week I'm delighted to be chatting with bookworm and dear friend Alistair Hammond about a dozen books which may well change your perspective. There are some absolute belters in there which we go into in detail. We'll also discuss our usual topics surrounding the status quo and the human condition. I learned so much from this podcast and added some intriguing books to my list of must-reads. I hope you will too. So sit back and delve with me, if you will, into the inordinate mind of this master of communications. You can find out more about the books in this conversation by going to thenaturalhighclub.com forward slash books. And remember to subscribe to us on whichever platform you're listening to this podcast to get every new show straight to your phone. (sighs) The Natural High. How are things over there? How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm good. I was hanging with Riff Raff this morning. I took him for his morning wee-wee, which tends to be, you know, a functional thing in the morning because we go for proper walkies later on. But he always drags his yeah. heels, of course, when we're out for those first walkies in the morning after a long sleep. He always wants to be outside. I'm there trying to get him to hurry along so I can make everybody brekkie. But he's absolutely steadfast. He digs his heels in and, you know, you get to the point where you sort of feel cruel. I know you've got a dog. You get to the point where they want to stay so much that you feel cruel uh, trying to make them move. So I just sit down on the road um, with him and I suddenly sort of see and hear what he's seeing and hearing and you know I love nature anyway me and Riff Raff get out every day for a few hours for walkies but when I stopped this morning I was almost overwhelmed by the beauty of it the the, the sort of myriad songs of the birds the um, the view of San Francisco Bay on a wonderfully clear day after suffocating smoke uh, the suffocating smoke of the wildfires the sun yeah. on my face it was pure bliss and it just reminded me to stop and appreciate like Rafa does uh, every now and again, because there are such big psychological benefits to it. Yeah, well then, Rafa's case is probably just pure laziness, no? <laughs> You're one of the people that talks most about Rafa being fossed over too much. Other of my dear <laughs> friends say the same thing. Yeah, well, <laughs> but it's a lovely dog. I love the dog. But um, we're obviously going to talk books. I'm very excited to pick your brain on some seminal reads because you've always been something of a bookworm. Uh, you steered my life with some great literature and introduced me to the likes of Louis de Bonieres and Alain de Bochon, among others, um, who I think are fantastic authors. Uh, so you're going to yeah. suggest some great books for us all. But it will be wrong of me to start without giving you the virtual soapbox for some general conjecture about the status quo. So I'd love to get you. We talked in we talked in detail in depth um, last time you were here last September before COVID kicked off, and we love to talk about zeitgeist and things like that. But what's your take on COVID? Is this the beginning of the end for humankind, or just a wake up call from which we will all change and blossom? Well, I mean, in, in some ways, it's a wake up call. But yeah, so I think that the the wake up call is going to be in how we organise work and how we organise transport, how we organise the way people live and i think there is going to be a the shift. practical aspects it's really important isn't it yeah i mean because you can do a lot of this stuff over over you know whatsapp over zoom whatever um teams uh, and a lot of people are finding this is a lot less stress and a lot more fun to do without having to slap your way into the office every day you know people like that it seems like a win-win because obviously it's so much better for the environment as well if people are staying at home rather than, you know, driving into work or whatever each day. It's going to make a huge impact, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, also just in terms of mental health, right, obviously being locked down isn't good for your mental health. But if you can do this 
in a normal situation where you can move around freely and choose when you go into the office, I think that's going to make everyone's life a lot better and people's mental health will will improve a lot, right? Because you can do stuff, you just have more time. Like in London, the normal commuting time is about an hour there and an hour back. And that's pretty straight, that's pretty normal. Like anything under 45 minutes is, is a pretty good in London. Mm. Um, and take that out of the equation for, for millions of people every day, that's a huge amount of time that you're giving people back, right? Sure, productivity improved because you've got less transit time. Um, I, I'm assuming, and we've already seen it, but I think technology is going to improve in leaps and bounds in the coming years in terms of being able to interface remotely. I think we'll see a lot more um, developments with video conferencing. You know, maybe within the five or ten years, we're going to see holographic stuff going on, so we'll actually be able to interact with people around us, and we'll be moving around in our room and speaking yeah. to people, and they'll they'll feel even more sort of you know close to you, even though they're only virtually there. But do you think there would be a disadvantage do you think it would inhibit our social skills that we aren't able to interact moving forward like physically face to face well i think at the moment we're restricted not just in the office but we're also restricted in all the other stuff we're doing so mm. if you take if you take only the office out of the equation and leave everything else the way it is then people will will uh, you know you, you'll get the best of both worlds you'll have more time you'll have more freedom um, you know, companies will have to trust their employees more than they do now. Um, and I think it's going to be pretty clear which employees are, can handle the freedom and which, uh, you know, take the, take the mickey. Um, and so that's going to be a process, obviously. But, and also there are a lot of jobs that can't be automated or you can't do them remotely. Um, and so, uh, so there's, there will always be a background uh, you know, noise of people moving about. But I think generally, if people go to the office less, that's that can only be a good thing, right? It seems like a great thing to me. I know that this, this situation has been forced upon us, but it, it makes me think about things more in the meta. And I wonder whether there's any correlation between this sort of, you know, inevitable charge of of technology and the, the dissolution of community, because we are, you know, technology is forced isolating us in some ways don't you think uh, it sort of you know goes back to that sort of face-to-face -face thing and the value of actual physical face-to-face -face time whether you think we're losing anything without it do you not think we're becoming more isolated with the advent and the development of digital the digital age it's a, it's making it it's facilitating um the sort of idea of living you know living without needing to see anybody physically yeah but i think people are naturally social animals right and if you have more time for example uh, at home, if you don't have to commute as much, then you'll get to know your neighbors better, right? And then you'll have a community where you live and around the school, your kid's school, you, you know, people will have more time to do their social life uh, in their community rather than in their place of work. Mm, yeah, it's really good. So you think we'll always move towards the light in that respect? We need to, to have, the, uh, you know, to interact physically with other people. Yeah, I think so. I mean, people... It's a biological people, thing. It's a biological imperative, right? People like other people. They like to be around them, you know, and things are getting better all the time. People are getting healthier. Technology is improving. You know, things are generally going towards the light, as you say, I, th I think. Although it doesn't mm -hmm. always seem that way. 
what amazes me is how quickly we adapt as human beings. I mean, if you'd if we'd projected something like this, if I said this to you like eighteen months ago, and I've, so many people have said this already, but if I said to you eighteen months ago, you know, we're all going we're all going to be wearing masks in public, the whole world would be wearing masks in public, we'd laugh about it, and we'd imagine it was some you know new sci-fi uh, script that had come out, or pretty much every sci-fi script that, or also dystopian future film that comes out is based around some kind of disease or virus or you know zombification or something like that, and things have changed so quickly it's amazing how quickly we adapt though isn't it don't you think like we it's almost boring now to talk about covid even though i'm going to go into it yeah i mean the thing that really strikes me is how stupid people are with the q and on and all the conspiracy theories that are that uh, there's a lot of people that believe in this kind of stuff people you know Mm -hmm. in the u.s obviously uh but also china created the disease on purpose whatever the virus well, also that it doesn't exist, that there are okay. masks that don't work, that, we're, that, that 5G is trying to infect our, <laughs> our brains with, with uh, you know, pedophile worms, whatever it is. There's loads mm-hmm. of stuff going on. And I, I think, do think that technology has a, has a, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all of these uh, social media uh, companies have got a, have really dropped the ball on this one. You know, people are, you know, people in the absence of clear guidance and trust in the political system and their political leaders um, are turning to um, to madness. And that's quite strange. I think. Mm. Do you think uh, social media is a positive force for humankind? Or do you think, do you think they just haven't grasped the nettle in general in terms of the tools that they have and the, the power they have to, for good? Well, you know, they, they say that when they introduced electricity, it took, 20, 30 years for the productivity gains to, to start feeding through. And I think that social media and the, you know, the always on connected world, that's going to take a while to, to, um, to show you to show its full potential. And I, you know, in some ways it already has made a huge difference to productivity, but they're also very dark. Side. And honestly, I think social media at this point is a negative. Mm. I watched a brilliant documentary last week called The Social Dilemma, which I definitely highly recommend to you and anybody listening because it's absolutely brilliant. And it, we all know that, you know, we all, we've all heard about the idea of sort of intrusive marketing and advertising algorithms, Google sort of, you know, harvesting and other companies, of course, potentially harvesting our data um, so, so that adverts um, can be more targeted and more efficient than ever. Um, but this talks about, we all know that exists, but this talks about the actual mechanic of it and the potential negative impact on our lives and it's it's fascinating it's so well put together it also does a sort of real life or a sort of case study alongside the actual documentary it's something of a docudrama i suppose but it's it's absolutely brilliant essential viewing i definitely think you should watch it i'll check it out hmm. well th- i've heard that there's a second wave happening in U- the uk right now boris johnson's been uh, come out publicly to state that we are seeing a second wave of covid in the uk is there a sense of fear around now or is it just sort of digging in war of attrition sort of thing uh you know it's hard to see hard to see the full picture right so we're we're kind of based in london in one particular part of london we don't really Mm. move outside that particular area um north london so it's hard to give like a general sense but you know from what i can see when i go on the tube people are wearing masks people are kind of following the rules more or less i mean not not religiously but there's a general uh, a sense that people are doing their thing, um, but there's no tests to be had in the UK. Uh, the guidance keeps changing. You know, they wasted a lot of time, um, you know, on the optics rather than the substance. And so I think that the UK is in a pretty bad place. 
But, you know, so, North London seems to be pretty good. There's not that much going on here. Islington, where I live, there's not, uh, you know, the pandemic is fairly controlled in this particular part of, of the world. So, and yeah. is everybody just going about their business as normal or is it quieter on the streets than it would normally be? Well, you know, we were down the Holloway Road today and it was rammed. Wow, you and I have had some good nights down the Holloway Road, haven't we? In, in years gone by. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wonderful. So, so it sounds like you're, you're doing okay then. Is there a desire for you? Has there been a desire for you? Have you thought about the idea of moving out to the countryside from the city since this has all kicked off? I certainly have. Yeah, I mean, I would prefer to move somewhere like Singapore, to be honest with you, somewhere warmer. Mm. Um, you know, we're okay. I mean, you know, it's quite nice and green around here. We're in, we have a good life. It's good. Yeah, I love London, and I'm very nostalgic about it. I've been away for, for a good five years now on my travels. But um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your job. Uh, it's a fairly new job, isn't it? But does it give you, like, a really good understanding, and does it keep you on the pulse of what's going on because it is so science-related? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I'm the head of comms for a, for a laboratories group, um, a European, one of the big ones. And so I get to talk to a lot of people in the in the medical space, the people that are actually taking the tests across Europe. Um, and so mm. I, I do get a good, good sense of, of, of how this pandemic is being handled on the ground. Um, and I think that there's a lot of variation from country to country. Like some countries are doing amazingly, like Slovakia is doing very well. They, the they locked down early. They've done a lot of, uh, you know, they've got all their testing lined up, got all their ducks in a row. And then other countries are, much less well organized um, and things are, uh, you know, it's a very variable picture. Mm. What are you thinking? Are you thinking that we're just waiting for a vaccine before we can continue? Or do you think we're just going to have to manage this? Do you think a vaccine may not be a sort of silver bullet as it were? Um, how do you see it? How do you see the world looking in the next year or so? Right. I think that the Oxford vaccine is looking pretty promising from what I hear. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, you know, I can't judge whether the Russian one uh, you know, is is effective or not? You know, I don't think anyone really knows at this point. But the the one that is going through all the proper proper uh, channels and procedures looks pretty good. And I think that we're going to start seeing it rolled out to at risk groups uh, within the next three months or so, um, and then gradually it'll it'll percolate through the populations. But obviously, starting, you know, I think the important thing is to, to target it at the, the people that are most at risk across all the countries, rather than uh, one particular country trying to, or countries competing to get their hands on the vaccine and then just reading it to their own people. I think that if you have competition rather than cooperation, that's going to be pretty bad and a lot of people will die. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is a world problem which should be dealt with on a world basis, right? On a global level. Yeah, quite exactly. So you're feeling sort of fairly optimistic about it. Do you think that we will go back to a stage where the world looks like it did before? I think so. I mean, I think that there Completely. will be a lot of people. <laughs> I think there will be masks in public in five years' time. I don't think so. No, I mean, I think that people wow. will will have found ways to to live that are that work better with everyone's um, free time, and I think that working from home um, is going to become much more of a thing. I think inner cities might become more of a place to live than a place to work, um, mm. and all of these things I think can only be good over the medium term. 
Wow, I like your I like your positivity about it, and I think that maybe we could look at COVID as sort of microcosm for humanity. Maybe I feel quite negative. I, I live over in California, as you know, and we're just getting hit by one potential apocalypse after the next at the moment. We've had COVID this year, and now the wildfires, of course, which are just been absolutely horrific and they've affected us directly one day last tuesday we woke up and it was about i don't know by about 10 o'clock 11 o'clock in the morning we realized something was badly wrong because it didn't get light all day it was pre-dawn level light all day um because of the smoke in the atmosphere it's absolutely bizarre and very quickly you realize that you don't really want to live like this for very long san francisco and california is such a beautiful place to live but it seems that it's uh, the sort of the tip of the spear of climate change now i'm quite pessimistic about climate change and global warming in general i think that we are like rabbits in the headlights basically but do you think as with covid you know we're finding a vaccine for covid do you think that necessity is the mother of invention and that we will find a way to to um tackle and overcome these problems with climate change at the moment or do you think this one is going to be the the one that gets us i mean that's a it's that's a tough question but i do think that that well, i'm asking you because you're a brilliant man <laughs> i think it's definitely concentrated minds and it also shows that if you have a systemic threat that people respond to it and can respond to it um and that there are ways to to, to make a, a change on the on the global level right so and i think that that's gonna i think that's pushed people towards more creative thinking and uh, and that will be that's what we need to do for climate change as well right We've got people like Boris Johnson and Donald Trump telling us how to get through a pandemic. And, um, you know, and the scientists, it seems to be a sort of witch hunt for science in certain quarters at this point in time. So we're not really listening to the specialists when it comes to this sort of stuff. And over in America, we've come out of the Climate Accord, of course, one of the only countries that's not part of the Paris Climate Accord, even though it's... It, it, the, the projections, even the scientists seems to seem to have made conservative projections about global warming. It seems to me even the scientists are surprised at this point. Yeah, but I think that the young people are going to make a change, right? So people, the young people care about this stuff. They care about it more than the old fogies um, that are in charge. And I think that as as the generations get out of the way and new ones come up, I think this is going to speed up and, and improve. I love it. Wow, this is such positivity. This is perfect for the natural high. There's me worried that everything, you know, imagining that we're already living in this dystopian future. And you're like, no, you know what? And this this sort of segues nicely into books because I think children's books have a lot to answer for. And that's because, you know, there may be, there's always monsters early doors in, ch- in children's books, scary stuff. But yeah. in every children's book, ultimately, they inverted commas, all live happily ever after. It's in our psyche that whatever problems befall us, things will magically sort themselves out. And in the end, uh, you know, in the end, things will sort themselves out with us, without us even really having to participate. That's what worries me when I see things like COVID and global warming. That, you know, I don't think it's going to be the case with humankind that we can just expect that everything will just sort itself out in the end. I think we need to seriously change our ways. Um, it, we're sort of like passive observers, rabbits in the headlights of climate change at the moment, it feels to me. Well, I don't think that that's true for everybody. I think there is a lot of people out there that care very, very passionately about this kind of stuff, and they are mm. making change. Right? I'm up for. I love it. Are you optimistic about America? I'm, opt- I'm optimistic about America, uh, but it's a qualified optimism, right? I guess we have to wait and see what happens, um, you know, down the line with the election. No. 
Yeah, America's a lovely country, but yeah, the the, the hot potatoes, of course, the political goings on. Do you who do you see as the next pre- the president of America uh, come the end of the year? I can't believe that uh, that uh, the Donald Trump will be re- re-elected. I don't believe it, but you know, we didn't think that uh, Hillary would lose last time either. So uh, you know, I'm I'm basically religiously reading my five thirty eight my my. Uh, uh, my uh, my political blogs and and seeing what uh, what they say uh, and at the moment I think the last one was that it's 22% uh, Trump uh, likelihood of winning the election and 77% um, Biden but that's you know it's a projection who knows and there's a lot of time there's another 45 days right Kamala Harris is a, a sensational woman and somebody who I just think would be such a fantastic leader of this country ultimately because you know America is still the most powerful country in the world and it needs to have some positive role models you know on an international level people so people can look at uh, America from other countries and see it as this aspirational place again I just don't think it's got that vibe at the moment do you uh that's a another tough question but you know I, I i would agree that kamala harris is a pretty awesome person and i think she'd make a great president oh my god it's exactly the change that we require but yeah i'm just hoping that she will take over ultimately and of course you know a, a slightly past his pomp biden is uh, incomparably better than a, a country run by donald trump but i'd be less surprised if he got a second term than um, than i was the first time he got in so yeah anything can happen as you say yeah, but the numbers are not looking good for him. They're not at the moment. But, you know, um, some, I was listening to some uh, political commentator the other day, and he was talking about the fact that we have all the ingredients in America right now for a civil war because there are two – everything is so polarized. There are two such um, clear sides on this argument, people who sort of believe in the old-school conventional America, the Constitution, everything that it stands for, and then other people who are saying, you know, that this country has been run on slavery. There are so many tragedies in our history. We've got to make amends. We've got to change our way. And it seems like there is no, there are so few people coming to the table at this point in time and actually talking through their opinions and their differences. It's just a, a slanging match and it's really con- concerning. And he talked about civil war, but I think civil war may be taking place these days in a far more sophisticated, inverted commas way on the internet. It's all about the battle for minds these days, isn't it? I mean, we, for example, are being told, you're telling me that Biden's way ahead in the presidential race. Would this, you know, would this maybe brainwash some people into thinking, I don't even need to go and vote for the democrats because he's going to win so easily well that's always the the danger with these sort of forecasts right you got to be actually go out and vote otherwise it, it's a smoke mm, very true um i'm going to move on to books very quickly uh, not very quickly i'm going to move on to books in detail because I, as I said, you've always been somebody that I've looked up to in terms of your literary knowledge and your your love of literature. Why have you always been so hungry for the book? I don't know. That's uh, it's. Um, I, th- I think it's a, the kind of thing that uh, that happens when you have um, you know an imagination as a as a as a young child and you spend a lot of time burrowing into into words like Narnia and the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And I kind of, I guess I developed a love of, of, of that sort of world building, um, you know, mind blowing kind of imagination stuff. And, and I, I think I've just kept that. That's all. And I think, you know, books are a great window into, into other minds. Um, and uh, so I'm kind of naturally drawn towards books that don't necessarily, you know, show me what I already know, but, introduce me to, to different 
ways of living, different, different cultures, different ways of thinking, um, you know, that are interesting. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I think for, to your first point about, you know, the imagination that it sort of generates, um, it's it, it's so much more work to be done with a book than with TV, for example, because TV conjures the images for you, whereas with a book, you've got to do it yourself. But ultimately, that's so much more rewarding, isn't it? Become you, because you become so much more emotionally invested in a book. And sometimes I've, I've read books before where I'm coming to the last few pages. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm genuinely impressed that it, the book is ending. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly it. You know, you, you, you get, you love the characters, you, you, you get into their world and, and you, you, you don't want the book to end. Yeah. And the beauty for me of the book, yeah. If just leading up from that is just the fact that everybody has a slightly different character in mind when that character is described to them. Um, the, the second thing I want to say about books is for me these days, I do like reading very informative books, things that will change my perspective, but I also, I like the, the how as well as the what, um, so, as much as the what, you know, a turn of phrase or a way something is described can be so delicious that that's all you need. Yeah, I mean, sometimes the magic is in the sentence, right? So, um, you know, a lot of books, it's about the story, about the narrative, but then there's also some writers like Terry Pratchett, where you can just read a sentence and go, that's an incredible, you know, work of genius, just this one sentence. And, I, you know, and, and so there are different ways that books can hit you. But you gave me a list of books um, at last minute, might I say, and most of I'm yes, absolutely yes, delighted yes. that you did. <laughs> I'm de- I only asked for them at last minute, but I'm delighted you did because I haven't heard of most of them. So it's going to be a fantastic journey for me. Um, and I don't know if you wanted to do them in any sort of order, but the one that stuck out to me immediately, just because I know it, is um, Tales of the City by um, Armistead Mopin, which is an absolutely fantastic uh, book. Um, I love it so much because what I like about it, it seems to describe San Francisco in its halcyon days of the early 70s. Um, a young girl can turn up in the city from the Midwest and rent a, like a nice apartment without ha- even having a job. I mean, that's... Yeah, you that that doesn't that's not San Francisco of today, you know. It San Francisco's got this the these sort of associations of being like a really hippie and spiritual place, and there is still that under the surface. But it used to be sort of proudly and boldly that the whole place seems so welcoming and liberal in the seventies, in the way that it's described in Tales of the City. It sort of embraces and rejoices in the diversity that it has, like the gay scene. Gay people feel completely free and safe to express themselves in this San Francisco that is described and. Of course, that is the way today in San Francisco, but it must have felt so exciting back then because it was such a taboo um, at the time. You know, in the 70s, homosexuality was still so much more of a taboo than it is today. And also yeah. the other thing that struck me about the book was that people really care about each other in the book, which is something which doesn't happen so much in San Francisco these days. People are, of course, friendly to you on the surface, but um, yeah, again, it comes, comes back to community. It feels like there's a stronger sense of community in the way that it, um, 1970s San Francisco is depicted in this book. Um, yeah. so, so tell me what you love about it. So, I mean, I guess what I, what I love about this book is that the, 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 the people have such a strong sense of community that there's a, such great friendships among the characters and that really it's like a golden warm glow of youth that, that suffuses the book. Uh, everyone gets into scrapes, but no one really gets into major trouble. Um, it's just a nice, it's like an ideal, set of friends really and you can you can follow them through uh what are, what is it six books seven books mm. um you know and it's it's just it's kind of like candy isn't it i mean i think it's escapism really 
Um, it's not too deep. Um, there's not. Do you think it's a realistic much. portrayal of San Francisco in the seventies? I mean, I have no idea. I doubt yeah. it. <laughs> but um, it's certainly very lovable. But 1967, Summer of Love, I think it was 67, the Summer of Love. And, uh, you know, so it was around that sort of time. There's a real cultural revolution going on in San Francisco at the time, wasn't there? So it feels like that book is on sort of on the wave of that. Yeah, although, you know, my sense is that probably in hindsight, it was it, it seems much nicer, much sweeter and, and warmer than it really was at the time. I mean, I think you've got to remember that actually the 60s were a pretty conservative age for mm. most um, and that the what was happening in San Francisco and, and Paris and London, Rome, you know, was very much the exception and and not at all, you know, there was still all the, the grey men in suits running stuff and they, they, you know, they ran, they still kind of run the show to a large extent. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think it's idealised. I think we have a, a, a rose-tinted perspective on that. I think the 60s, particularly the 50s, were a pretty uh, restricted a restrictive time yeah and there is you know the suits are prevalent in the the book as well there is the whole nod to the corporate america at the same time in tales of the city isn't there and sort of the the, the sort of um crazy decadence of these people at the start of the sort of yuppie era i suppose the very start of the yuppie era mm-hmm. yeah so where where were you when you read this book because i often think that you know a book can be even better when you if you tie it to an, a specific memory in your life I think I picked it up from a secondhand bookstore in Bali, actually, and and then you know realized that this was good stuff and picked up the other ones, you know, as and when I could. You know, you we would we would motorbike through the through the the back streets of of Kuta, um, and wow. there, there were bookshops, you know, on the side of the road, and you could buy the books for like two thousand rupiah, um, and that's that's how I discovered a lot of stuff. I have got a photograph of you and me lying in the sand in Bali, and it says uh, that we've scrawled in the sand, loving it, Bali, 1996. Uh, well, you have to send me the picture. I have never no clicked. I will do. Um, and uh, you, you lived there for about eight years, didn't you, in Bali? In Indonesia, yeah, rather, in, in Jakarta? In, yeah, six years in Jakarta. A very exciting time of your life. Yeah, it was good. We had a revolution we had, um, you know, in fact, we had a kind of a rolling revolution from 97 to 99. Um, it was an exciting time to be there. Was it in your face, the revolution? Because I came and visited you around then. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know whether we actually, you know, frequented parts of the city where, where you know, revolution might be occurring. But uh, was it in your face? Did it feel genuinely dangerous being there at the time? Well, you know, when you're in your 20s and 30s, you know, you don't really worry about that kind of stuff. You just go out and, and, um, and throw <laughs> yeah, Invulnerable. Exactly. I mean, stupid maybe is another word for it. You're working for the Jakarta Post, so you were in the line of fire, surely? Well, not at the Jakarta Post, but when I then moved, uh, when I was hired to, as a correspondent for Bloomberg in, in the 90s, um, then I was out and about, you know, reporting from the from the riots from the streets, and that was pretty exciting. You might as well tell me about what's actually happening these days politically in Indonesia. Have things settled down? Is it? Are we are we living in a democratic world in, in Indonesia right now? You know, I don't follow it as closely as I used to, but it seems pretty stable right now. Things are better. It's not a full democracy, and it's pretty corrupt still. Mm. Um, but you know, it's a it's a it's not a dictatorship either. And what about Bali? Is it still one of the jewels of the planet to go and travel to? <laughs> I love Bali. 
um, but I haven't been back for a long time. So when was the last time you went? The last time, maybe ten years ago. Okay. And you went to Bali, right? So you check out the sort of quieter parts of Ubud and stuff like that. Are they still undeveloped and mystical, or are they are they all sort of you know? I think there's a magical. Well, that, that it is definitely gentrified. You can go to the restaurants where you get, you know, super fancy food and delicious cocktails and all that kind of stuff. And that's a lot of Bali now. Um, but you can still drive around the, the interior and admire the rice paddies. Um, and it's pretty unspoiled. And the people are super nice. Such a magical place. I remember driving to a few places with you and watching like Gamelan music and some beautiful performing arts and stuff like that. So much going on there. Yeah, it's a cool Such place. Such a rich history. Okay, so Tales of the City, I could talk about that for hours, but let's move on to Claude Brown, Man-Child in the Promised Land. I know nothing about this book, and I'm afraid I haven't done any research either, so you're <laughs> going to set the scene. Okay. so this, Paint the this, picture with that silver tone. <laughs> this book was pressed into my hands um, in the, when I was pretty young, so I, I don't know. I mean, I must have been my, maybe my early teens, perhaps, um, maybe younger, and it, it's basically a book Quite, probably quite an unsuitable book about this guy who grows up in Harlem and is basically a, a criminal uh, and falls in with all kinds of bad people and does all kinds of crimes and drugs and sex and violence and all this kind of stuff. And then eventually uh, is, uh, is put back on the straight and narrow um, through, the, through the power of education. And so he basically gets his life in order. And, the, and it's an autobiography, so it's, it kind of reads like a like a, a fairly far-fetched novel, but it's a, it's an autobiography, uh, pretty intense. And when I was a, you know, a pretty sheltered, you know, kid, yeah. uh, this was like a, a total mind blower because this is a world that I'd never thought about, never knew existed. And, and it really, uh, it was pretty intense. And so I remember this book making a big impact on me when I was a kid. So this guy, Claude Brown, he's writing about himself. It's an autobiography that he's written, right? Yeah, yeah. And is he, was he native to America? Did he come from yeah. a foreign land? Well, no, he's a, he, he's a Harlem kid that grew right. up in, you know, you know, that's where he grew up. That's where he went to, to youth correctional institutes and prison and all this kind of stuff and all the crimes that he, that he did at the time and all the drugs that he dealt and all this kind of stuff. Um, but it was also an interesting insight into the, the society at the time. And, and that was, that was a pretty, you know, pretty much a, uh, you know, a very, a very interesting world to be introduced to as a, as a young kid. It, um, it, it sounds quite brutal in parts. Is it like Louis de Bonnier is brutal in parts? No, it's much more brutal than that. Wow. So, I mean, I, to be honest with you, I haven't read it for about 30 years. Um, but I, or maybe even in fact, I probably haven't read it since I was like, whatever, 12 at the time. Um, but I, I do remember that it made a big impact. And so when you said what books uh, changed your perspective, that one immediately mm. came. Wow. And at what point does brutality in books become, you know, stop being informative? I mean, does it inform us in any way, brutality in books? Well, what I think this... did you learn from the brutality? Yeah. So in this particular case, the, the guy doesn't just continue on that path, right? He moves off the path. He, you know, he, he has an awakening. He becomes... Uh, more conscious of what's going on and how you know what's what he's doing, um, and he changes changes into a you know an upstanding member of society, 
um, and and becomes like a professor of something or other in his later. And this is the so it's it's a real change, right? The guy basically had his mind uh, educated and and became a better person. So it's a fable it's of sorts. Yeah, but it's an autobiography too. So it's not none of this stuff is made up. Um, no, sure. But the brutality there is a point to the brutality because it, he talks about the brutality in a negative way, I imagine, and how he moved evolved from that into a much happier space. Yeah, exactly. It's a change. So, okay, so, yeah, so there's yeah. a point to that brutality. But, you know, I'm just thinking, when I look at the TV these days, I would imagine that it's 90%, I haven't done the math, but probably somewhere around 90% of it is people getting murdered, raped, you know, going missing. It seems that we're fascinated by dark shit on TV. What do you think? I mean, that doesn't feel particularly educational, does it? It's just escapism, but appeals maybe to our sort of darker side as humans. I don't know. I think people also like to see uh, flowers and butterflies as well, right? And tales of love and, and, you know, beautiful stuff. I think that there is the, you know, people respond on an emotional level to all kinds of stuff and violence is, and sex is just, you know, those are two, two triggers, but there's others as well. Right. Do you think we um, influence the demand? We influence, we shape what um, TV companies produce and what product, production companies produce. Do we shape that or do they shape our demand? Do they shape what we want to watch? Well, I think it's a bit of both, right? So, you know, there's a demand. If, the, if people don't want to watch it, then, they, then the TV companies obviously work out that it's, there's no point in making it. <laughs> um, Sam Selvin, A Brighter Sun. Yeah, yeah. That's a fantastic book. So that also blew my mind. At university, I took a course in Caribbean literature um, wow. and also South African literature, That which was, and both of those were really very, very bloody good. Um, How did you decide to take those modules? Were you doing anthropology at, uh, at uni? No, I studied Italian and English literature in Italian. Right, okay. And so this was a part of my English course. Um, mm-hmm. It was something I chose, and the... The Caribbean, particularly the Caribbean literature, there's some amazing books um, that that we were that we were asked to read, and the one that really, I mean, a bunch of them stuck out. Uh, Minty Alley was one that is very good. That's a, a book um, by um, a writer who later became a, a, a an authority on cricket, but he wrote this book when he was younger, and it was about a, a kid from a you know from a middle class Trinidadian. Um, uh, family who's basically whose family loses their status and he has to move in into a poor neighborhood and then he basically just lives in this house in minty alley um, and gets up to all kinds of no good and into all kinds of scrapes and meets a girl and just lives amongst um, that community and it's a very beautiful book and sam selvon wrote a book called a brighter sun which is a, a, kind of a personal journey uh, a story where a relatively uneducated and ignorant um, Indian Trinidadian guy um, marries this girl um, and is not the best human being, uh, but over time grows to understand and matures into a better person. And, and, And the book itself is just a beautifully written, it's just a beautiful book. A book about relationships. No, it's a book about personal growth, I think, is what it is. It's also about Trinidad. Yeah. What are they sort of general themes going through Caribbean literature, popular Caribbean literature, some, some threads going through there, common struggles? Well, I mean, a lot of the stuff um, that I was reading is sort of from, uh, from the sixties and seventies and some of it from the eighties. And a lot of that stuff 
focused on some pretty tough themes of you know of uh, post-colonial struggle and racism and various other stuff mm. like that and, sure. and education but um what i loved about a brighter sun was that it's an optimistic book right so the guy you know the guy grows as a person and becomes a, a better human being and it's a there was, there was just something magical about the book. He also wrote a book called The Lonely Londoners, which I think is the book that most people, more people will know, which is very mm. funny. He, basically, he moves, the guy moves to, the character moves to London um, and gets into all kinds of scrapes. So that's really all it is. It's not a super sophisticated plot, um, but it's, uh, it's hilarious. It's a brilliant book. Oh my God, I'm definitely going to check out A Brighter Sun. Do you think that it's important to have authentic and... Um, and a very individualistic way of observing things to be a good writer. Well, I think, I think a good writer will write about what he or she knows. Right. So if you, you know, if you feel it, then you know, that comes across. Mm. Um, Minty Alley. I think that'd be a brilliant writing pseudonym for you. <laughs> That's a good idea. I <laughs> uh, love the fact that you're suggesting some real hopeful, positive stuff in here as well. I'm, I'm loving, I mean, I generally do read a book by its cover and uh, A Brighter Sun would immediately attract me. Yeah, it's uh, definitely worth a read. I mean, I, the, thing, the thing that I generally look for in a book is it has to have a plot. So I'm old fashioned, right? If it doesn't have a cracking plot and things don't move, things don't, don't actually happen. You know, if it's just people sitting around, you know, outside moaning about their life or or, or or talking about philosophical concepts and nothing actually happens, then then you know, I I don't finish the book. But um, so it has to there has to be like a a, a fast pace. Things need to happen. The language needs to snap, uh, and it needs to have like a, a kind of emotional hook. Um, and so that that's kind of that's kind of where I am on the book front. On that basis, I'm guessing that Jack Kerouac's On the Road never really appealed to you. I quite like that. It was a good book. It was good. It was a good yeah. book for the time, wasn't it? It was a good book at the time you read it. You know, you get, yeah. you, you're, you're in your first few years at university, for example, and you read this book about sort of, you know, more liberal ideas in America, and it's wonderful. Yeah, well, it's a kind of a romantic, you know, bromance kind of book, isn't it? And also, I mean, a lot of stuff happens in that book, if, I don't, if I'm not completely mistaken. Mm. He doesn't. And he travel across America and, and get into all kinds of trouble with his friend, with his friends. And that what happened to them? It's been like 30 it's years. It's been such a long time. Yeah, no, but not a lot. It's more, I think it's more reflections on life and ways of living in general. I don't remember like a serious structure to the plot. They were just sort of crisscrossing America, weren't they? Getting smashed. Yeah, that's really true. And writing lots of poetry. As part of the B culture. A very interesting time. Very interesting. But I don't know if it's for me, maybe not the most enduring book. Well, you know, those are the kind of books you read when you're a teenager, like Steppenwolf. And, yes. Um, oh, I love that book. Well, you know, talk about nothing happening, right? Nothing happens at all in that book. It's just an incredible netherworld that's created, isn't it? Yeah, but it's all kind of in his mind, isn't it? It's wonderful. I absolutely love that book. Don't you dare diss that book. Come on yeah, in, I dissing it. that. I did, I did like it too. <laughs> uh, I think he won the Nobel Prize, Nobel Prize for Literature, didn't he, Herman Hess? Did he really? Uh, uh, you know, maybe. Mm. Uh, John Dos Passos, Manhattan Transfer. Yeah, good book. Uh, basically uh, an American classic, um, but written in a style that, that was very fresh and and cool at the time and kind of still reads, you know, still reads like a, like a, 
like something innovative and creative, you know, patches of, of narrative, bits of advertising, um, and all these different lives thrown together in, uh, in New York, um, in, into this great big maelstrom of the city. Pretty cool. Book. So it's about corporate America, broadly speaking. And it's, it's really about, it's just about, uh, about New York, uh, all the mm-hmm. people that are arriving, people that are making their lives and, um, but it's told in a, in a, in a style, like of fragments, um, and bits and pieces thrown together, which was, which was pretty revolutionary at the time and still mm. reads. I just heard you say still reads, but I didn't get any further than that. Yeah. Still reads good. Still reads well. Beautifully observed again, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. So we're talking about people from all walks of life in Manhattan then rather than just the sort of, you know, the business, the corporate side of it. Yeah, yeah, of course. So there's like immigrants, there's um, Italian immigrants, there's, uh, you know, I think the book begins with someone having a baby in a hospital um, and then that, that baby grows up during the course of the book. Um, and it's, it's like a, lots of strands of story that, are, that come together that, that weave like a tapestry of New York at the time, you know, in the 50s, I think it, it was written. Do you think that audiobooks are as valuable as reading um, an actual hardback or softback book? I've never really tried it out. Wow, that's amazing. That's like somebody, somebody saying, they've, to me, that's like somebody saying they, they don't have a mobile phone. Really? <laughs> yeah. I thought audiobooks were, were everywhere and everybody was into them these days. What I love about audiobooks is it, it allows you to digest so much information whilst you're doing other menial tasks. You can't really do that with a book. Yeah, that's true. But I'm not sure that I would be very good at I'm only a man, right? Men, as far as I'm concerned, I can only do one thing at a time. <laughs> and if it's reading, then that's what I want to do. And, you know, that's a really good point, actually, because I suppose the audio book sort of it, it dilutes the homage to the, the literature in some ways, because with a book, you do have to dedicate specific time to it. You have to sit down, you have to pour a glass of wine or whatever you're doing, and you have to, you know, dedicate your time specifically to that with an audio book. So it maybe dilutes uh, the essence of it somewhat because you are actually potentially doing other stuff. I mean, that may just be a, a walk through the countryside, but I do love the audio book and I'm sort of learning much more quickly quickly than before um, the audio book came about, to be honest. Well, if it works for you, that's great. Mm, absolutely. I love it. Okay. Manhattan transfers. Another one definitely that I will have on my ever lengthening list. Matthew Neal, uh, when yes. we were Romans, this sounds particularly interesting. Well, it's actually, this one is a bit of a, it sounds like a bit of a downer. Basically it's um, this guy, Matthew Neal is, the son of Judith Kerr, who wrote the Mog books. I don't know if you grew up with those. Um, no. No? Uh, you know the book, When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit? No? Uh, um, book about no. This, girl, this young German girl who basically fled uh, the Nazis um, and escaped to England. And that was uh, Judith Kerr, who then wrote some beautifully illustrated kids' books in the, in the 60s and 70s. Um, wow, no. And this is her son. Um, and he, he's a, an amazing author. Like everything he's done has been amazing. He did uh, a, a great book about, um, about Rome, because um, that's where he lives, called The History of Rome in Seven Sackings, um, which basically it does exactly what it says on the tin. It looks at mm. times that Rome was overrun uh, by barbarians and, and otherwise, mm-hmm. um, and, and the fascists. Um, and it's an interesting book, but this one is a, one of his, 
the fiction works. Um, and oh. it's a uh, doesn't yeah. seem like there's too many that crisscross like that. Too many authors crisscross. Do you know that? How many do that? No, not really. Generally, people either write novels or they write, uh, you know, all, yeah, factual all, stuff. Yeah. But this is a good. This is a great book because it really gets you into the mind of this woman who uh, who uh, essentially has like a mental breakdown and escapes with her son to Rome, where she spent time as a as a young woman and she gets she basically she runs away from her husband she has like delusions um and it's told in an incredibly sophisticated and i still don't really understand how he wrote this book but it's you really understand her point of view and you kind of understand and believe her delusions but at the same time as the book progresses you can see that actually a lot of the stuff that she believes and the stuff that she thinks just isn't true um, and so she ends up holed up in in her in a flat in in Rome with her son, and and uh, you know I'm not going to tell you the ending, but it's a it's a, an amazing insight into um, into I guess the way that delusions can take hold and how you get out of them. Wow, very interesting. And so when is this set? Is it set in modern day? Yeah, modern days. Like it's you know the 2000s. Is this one in some way autobiographical as well? I very much hope not. <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> okay, thank you for not giving us spoilers there, but that does sound intriguing. That's good. Um, it's and surprising because I don't normally like books that are about like heavy uh, or like distressing subjects, but this one was so beautifully done, so beautifully put together uh, that you, it's, it's a masterpiece in a shifting perspective, uh, which I, and I really don't understand how he wrote that book. Very good. Amazing. Notwithstanding the main characters, you know, delusions and her, maybe horrific time that she had in Rome, I have to say that I, I do think it's a city that's impossible not to love. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a great city to visit. I'm not sure I'd necessarily want to live in Rome, but good uh, point. Good point. But you know what I loved about Rome? Obviously, um, aesthetic beauty. It goes without saying. It's an absolutely amazing sort of, you know, pedestrianised in good ways, in many ways, place that you can walk around quite safely and easily. I mean, obviously there's some squares which are a bit crazy, but in general, it's, it's a place which you can traverse easily. And what I also love about it is the the sense of pride of the customer service there, where it, go, it comes to, you can walk into any restaurant, pizza restaurant, whatever, anywhere in Rome, I've found, and they will go to such extraordinary lengths for you to have a good experience. They are they take such personal pride in what they're doing. And um, right, so the Italians are, you know, and I live there as well, have a great knack for making people happy and making people, making sure that people have a good time and that, you know, it, it's a warm culture, hospitable culture. And much so that's more community-based, right? It feels like it's got a stronger sense of community. Yeah, I think so. You had a house in, in Italy, if I, if I remember correctly. Yeah, we had a house between Rome and Naples, which was a bit of a disaster. We were um, all threatening to go out there the whole time, weren't we? But it was just so inaccessible. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was nice that we had lots of olive trees, but the wow. place was a complete money sink. Um, so reluctantly, we had to get rid of it, but it was a good... Oh my, but it was yeah. a beautiful spot. You you suggested that I go there several times, and I can't believe I never took you up on that. Well, it's too late now. <laughs> but yeah, that sense of community in, in Rome was just wonderful. Like, I really did feel like I was being brought into the fold everywhere that I went. Um, I do wonder if we're losing that sense of community. 
Well, I think that, you know, I think that in a lot of the developed world, that is indeed exactly what has happened. Mm, so sad. River of Time by John Swain. Yeah, River of Time, amazing book, totally blew my mind. John Swain is a journalist, uh, a British journalist who uh, did all kinds of exciting stuff in the 70s. I think he was also in the, the Killing Fields. Um, uh, he, you know, one of the characters in the Killing Fields uh, movie was was him. Um, and so he basically spent, ah. um, spent his time in, in Asia in the 1970s covering the Vietnam War. And this is one of this book looks at his experiences it's, I guess, semi-autobiographical, uh, maybe it is autobiographical, where he basically um, just looks at what happened in Vietnam and in Laos and Cambodia uh, in the 1970s with the Vietnam War and the, and the end of it. And it's a, and it's a love story. It's an adventure, yarn. There's incredible writing in it. It's just a beautiful book. Fantastic. That sounds absolutely, it, it sounds like there may be some tragedy in there as well, though. I'm, I'm worried. There's, there's, always, there's always tragedy. But I've heard, I heard today that they're making it into a film, in fact. Oh, fantastic. River of Time, John Swain. Uh, sounds yeah. good, too. I'm definitely keen. Um, Elizabeth Pisani, Indonesia, etc. Yeah, Elizabeth Pisani is sort of, a, um, I guess, a friend of a friend. I don't know her personally. She's like a researcher into into infectious diseases and she wrote this book uh wow, she must be pretty relevant right now yeah i guess she she must be i think she's got a website called indonesia indonesia etc which is uh dedicated not just to the book but also to uh, you know her writings on various other subjects she's a brilliant woman and uh, this is a brilliant book it basically looks at um she decided to take like a year off and just go um living dangerously travel, travel around indonesia uh, with the conceit that she would say yes to everything, um, mm. which she more or less manages to do without getting into too much trouble. Um, and she, so it's a very opinionated book. She just travels around and tells stories, report just some reporting on, on from the islands in Indonesia, which I don't know very well. Um, and there, there's a lot of islands, um, and it's a big country, very spread out, um, quite decentralized now. And so she. So it's an interesting book because it also looks not just at her personal travels, which is sort of the hook or the the thread, but also uh, uh, covers some of the the political issues like uh, corruption on the retail level, right? So people who want to become teachers have to bribe um, certain people to get the job. And it kind of seems on reflection not to be the worst thing in the world, right? So she she also makes sort of mental compromises with with principles that you 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 would sort of think you'd hold dear. Um, there's also really interesting stuff about how the fishing industry in Indonesia could be made much more uh, lucrative and effective if you had better government. Mm. Um, lots of really interesting uh, side stories um, and very opinionated. There's some good stuff about a crocodile hunt as well. I did meet her once at a, at a festival. Um, mm. uh, Describe the festival. It was a the Latitude Festival a few years oh. ago. She was a uh, one of the the, the side um, events, and so there was a little story tent that we went in, and, and I took my son, and we sat down and listened to her uh, talk about her book, uh, which I just read and loved, uh, and it was very interesting. She's a, a smart, you know, uh, smart woman, and Amazing. it's a great book. 
Latitude is like a family fe- family festival, right? Yes, it is like one of those uh, you know balloon making, face painting, uh, you know, non Newtonian fluid uh, kind of festivals. A lot of. I mean, fun. I remember doing all that in Glastonbury off my chops. <laughs> The thing is, though, you have to, you have to do camping and then getting in and out is a huge bath. And so we. Oh my god! Oh my god! So true. I do miss my festivals, though. I'm I'm yearning for a return to festivals. There is an incredible free festival in San Francisco every October, uh, first week of October, um, and it's called Hardly Strictly Bluegrass, a bluegrass festival where all the best bluegrass and folk musicians from all over the world come and play. In, wow. in free festival in San Francisco, yeah, and it, we're going to miss it this year. It's absolutely. It just seems like it really sort of resets the sort of general sense of bonhomie in San Francisco every year when people go to this. Everybody goes, half a million people there every year. And um, yeah, sadly lacking from the so this year. It's been cancelled this year? Yeah, it's been cancelled. Well, there'll be, there'll, there'll be one next year, yeah? Yeah, and everybody just goes out to the park anyway. So, you know, it's a sort of impromptu festival. There's loads of drumming circles and live music there, as you know. Um, so uh, we're moving on to Ramita Nevai, City of Lies, another one which sounds fascinating. Yeah, so this is a very, this is actually in some ways quite similar to Indonesia, etc. This one is about Tehran. Um, oh, wow. It's, uh, it's a particularly it's a troubled history, right? Yeah, so it's a complicated, um, complicated place, but probably not as, as black and white as, as people, you know, perceive it as. I think that people don't know very much about it. Uh, Persia and uh, Iran, and neither do I really. But this book was a very interesting insight into uh, all the stories that are happening in in in, uh, in Tehran. Mm. So essentially, she was a BBC correspondent, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Um, certainly, she was a journalist in Tehran. She's she's Iranian British, um, and so she had access and she speaks the language, and so she went around. Uh, over the the time that she spent there and picked up all these stories that she then packaged into individual chapters um, uh, with the the over with the I guess the the red thread being that Tehran is a city where you have to lie to get to get through life. Wow! And so all of these lie to the authorities, lie to you have to lie to the authorities. You have to lie to the religious authorities. You have to wow. be um, an environment you know, of fear. Well, you know, but also a place of joy, right? So there's lots of really beautiful stories in the book about people, you know, having a, a wonderful life. But there, there's also, you know, so the, the book is, is vignettes or, or chunks of stories which are kind of self-contained. And each of them are, are very interesting, very fascinating. Wow. Do you think that a certain amount of adversity maketh the man? Well, I mean, I think that's a, one of those things that that uh, is probably true in hindsight but that doesn't necessarily mean that adversity is something to be welcomed right so a lot of good things came out of uh, out of the uh, the tough times in the uk in the 1970s for example like punk and and some great art but uh, i don't think it's something that also a lot of people had their lives dramatically curtailed and their expectations diminished and their potential snuffed out and so i think that you know, some some things burn brightly in difficult times, but um, you know, but it's not something that I would welcome in. 
Of course. And, you know, it's so easy for us to discuss it from a privilege, from a privileged perspective, because we both had largely exceedingly fortunate and happy lives. But it seems to me lots of people that I speak to seem to value life more as a consequence of having had some adversity. It makes them appreciate the value of life. Well, maybe that's a self-selecting group, right? So there's also probably an equal number or more people that were were uh, afflicted the, and then yes, never came through it didn't come through and that you don't that you that we never hear about because they uh they they didn't reach their potential they didn't do what they want to do mm. yeah a good point very good point oh that's what i was going to tell you i used to live with uh, an iranian girl um she most of the iranian people i've met have been very friendly and um, it's the same with Filipino people. I've never met a Filipino person I didn't like. Uh, but anyway, this girl, I lived with her for a few years. Layla, you might remember. She's a wonderful, wonderful girl. Re- really nice person to live with. And I seem to remember her telling me that her parents escaped Tehran, Tehran um, mm-hmm. dressed as sheep. They crossed the border dressed as sheep. Wow, that's a cool story. Mm. And it sort of speaks to the oppression now, I suppose, and the fact that it's still not a particularly democratized place, is it? Right, so I think it's a pretty tough place to to grab. There's, you know, not much by way of personal freedoms, um, uh, uh, you know. So, you know, they've tried a couple of times to to um, to rise up, but it hasn't really worked. And I think that there's some pretty tough, um, some pretty the authorities are pretty tough, right? So this is not um, an easy situation. A lot of a lot of people fled Iran in the 1970s. Like a lot of people that I grew up with in in Munich and uh, my school were were you know high class Iranians that left Iran in in the in the late seventies early eighties and took all their expertise and money with them. Wow, how long did you spend in Germany? From what ages? Uh, oh, from three and a half to uh, nineteen. Um, what's your perspective on Germany now? I think it's a world leader. I think it's a bloody marvelous country. Yes, I would agree. I mean, I think that they are having weird troubles at the moment with uh, with crazy people um, and the hard right, uh, which seems to have become quite a socially acceptable uh, group to to belong to in, in Germany, which I wouldn't have expected. You know, I would have thought that the Germans of all uh, of all people would be very careful about that kind of ignorance. But you know, apparently there's a a large chunk of people that are pretty hard right in, in Germany right now, but nowhere near a majority. Maybe there's a sense of, you know, you need to give people space to have freedom of expression and freedom of beliefs and opinions. Yeah, so I mean, I, th- I think that's a fair statement. I mean, you know, it's a free country, right? So people should be uh, should be left to, to express their views in, in any way they want, but you don't have to agree with it. Mm. It just seems to me like Germany under Angela Merkel is a country that is walking the walk. You know, so many countries pay lip service to sort of philanthropy and doing good, you know, genuinely good things where there may not be any sort of, you know, personal gain. But Germany, you know, with the Syrian refugee crisis, for example, I mean, really standing up and being counted. Yeah, I mean, I think I love Angela Merkel. I think that she's the standout politician, uh, you know, of our time. And I think that that's how history will record her. We need more women at the top. It's only when yeah, we're going to figure you. things out. <laughs> I totally agree. I really think that we should also have a, an age limit on politicians. And I think we, I mean, I'm not a believer in quotas, uh, but I do think that it's no coincidence that, I, I mean, this is banal and a lot of people have said this, but the countries that are run by women seem to have uh, handled the COVID 
a crisis a lot better than than uh, countries run by unreconstructed macho politicians like uh, you know like in the US and the UK. Well said, my friend. My favorite soundbite so far. Well, there you go. I'm all about the soundbite. <laughs> Peter Pomerantsev. I probably haven't pronounced that properly. Nothing is true and everything's possible. Yeah, it's an incredible book. It's basically it this sounds book. great. What a title. <laughs> it's a great title, isn't it? So he is, he, this guy actually went to my school, I found out after I read this wow. book. Wow. So, yeah, so he went to the European school in Munich. In the, you know, he was probably one of the little whippersnappers that we looked down upon. Um, and he basically, a Russian uh, emigre, or his parents were, and he moved uh, to the UK uh, from Russia. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure what the Munich connection is, but he then went back um, to Moscow in the 1990s to uh, and parlayed his way into a job um, at a TV station, you know, basically blagging it from uh, experience that he picked up in the UK and became quite uh, uh, successful. Um, in Russian TV and saw the way the propaganda, um, basically how Russian society and, and, and politics darkened over the 90s and how it all turned into, into what, we, what we know uh, and fear today in, in Russia. You know, but there was a process and he tells stories from the position of someone who was involved in actually making uh, TV programs at the time. Wow. And so he told a lot of stories about how certain issues were handled and how freedom was gradually pushed back and shrunk and how then um, the, a system of, of free flow bullshit basically took hold in Russia where the aim was simply to control public opinion. Mm. Um, and so, but he tells it from a very personal, uh, from personal experience. Sounds really interesting. And along those lines, I watched a documentary recently called Hypernormalization, which is fantastic and definitely uh, alludes to that, um, to, to Russian politics and the sort of general sense of confusion that was being spread amongst people over the last 20, 30 years, where if you feel confused enough, then you'll just stick with what you know rather than voting for the opposition leader. Yeah, I think that that's the one of the key aims of this kind of propaganda is to make people feel that there is no objective objective reality, and that uh, that everything is is fake, and that one opinion is the same as any other opinion. It it can the aim is to confuse and to dismay, um, to to basically make Divide sure that people are feeling it one way or the other. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, at one stage, Putin actually worked for many years with a, a theatre graduate, a guy called Sarkov, who he literally employed to yes, to start political movements, start political demonstrations, which were completely false and unreal, but he was just creating political confusion and unrest so that the perception around the country was of uncertainty and fear. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what they started doing after... Um, in the campaign that Yeltsin won just by the skin of his teeth, um, but at the cost of using pretty uh, questionable methods at the time. I think that they hired people from uh, from U.S. Uh, consultancies that basically set out ways to win the election hook by hook or crook. It's, it beggars belief, doesn't it, some of the stuff that goes on in the world today. And, you know, that whole idea of conspiracy theory, it's it's been given such a negative sham-like association, but it, so many of these conspiracy theories have some substance because things, we have the wool pulled over our eyes so much. And it seems to me that with governments and corporations these days, a lot of the time they're just 
they're not trying to do the right thing. They're trying to get away with doing the wrong thing. Well, you know, my, my view is that there's so much bad stuff happening and so many, um, so many bad actors around that are doing things perfectly openly. I don't think there's really any need for conspiracy theories. I mean, we can see uh, things people, could, uh, you know, are pretty straight with us and when they yeah. do things that are, I mean, I, and honestly, having worked as a journalist, you know, my view is that it's very hard to maintain any kind of conspiracy um, for any uh, significant period of time. And the bigger the consp- the alleged conspiracy, the harder it would be to control. So I think that... that JFK? What about JFK? <laughs> well, I mean, do you, do you think it went off just as American government described it? Or do you think there was some kind of conspiracy going on there that's been covered up successfully for many years? Well, I think that there's there was um, uh, the guy that, that shot him spent some time in Russia, and so there was an ideological Oswald, uh, Harvey Oswald. And so I think there was certainly some some dodgy dodginess happening in the background, but I don't necessarily think that there was any grand plan. You but know. all the visionaries seem to get assassinated in America, don't they? Well, not all of them. Well, Martin Luther King, JFK, you know, John Lennon, another great figure for change in America. Um, you know, some of the biggest... Some you of know, the most respected figures of political change. Yeah, but I mean, I think that you shouldn't underestimate the power of stupidity and of chance, right? There, a lot of stupid stuff happens by pure chance. I don't think there's necessarily great grand strategy behind this kind of stuff. And a, and a lot of visionary people don't get shot, right? Yeah, <laughs> they do. But it seems the, one, the ones that really want to tear up the, the rule book always seem to endanger in particular danger for their lives because, you know, the people that run the country don't necessarily want to have any change. They want to maintain the status quo. But that's pure speculation and conspiracy, of course. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The the author of the next book is particularly hard to pronounce. Is it a a silent M? Is it Sark Me Downnik? No, it's a guy called Mark Mjodovnik. Um, <laughs> right, you just said it's just yeah, been spelled. It's, it's a typo on my part. I apologize. Dovnik <laughs> um, is, is a material science professor. Um, oh, who interesting. An incredible book about uh, all the you know, various ways that, that materials operate, stuff that I'd never thought about, that okay. I'd never knew. Um, it's, I often it's, think, dude, that if we went back in time, if we went back 300 years somehow and we're just plonked in the 17th century, what would you mm-hmm. actually be able to invent? I mean, you've got all this stuff in your mind of stuff that just works, but we don't know how anything works, really, do we? Well, that's a slightly terrifying thought. Yeah, it's, probably- it's just life is on a play for us. We're not practical beings anymore, really, are we? Yeah, I mean, I think that webs- building a website is not a skill that the... 15th century would have much use for. <laughs> we'd be we'd be hung, drawn, and quartered even for mentioning it. Yes, but on the other hand, we'd probably be able to sell like our Evian bottle for a king's ransom. That's true, but there'd be some kind of witch hunt as soon as you get your Evian bottle out. <laughs> exactly. Um, stuff matters. I love the play on words. Tell me. Yeah, so it starts with a picture of him sitting on his roof terrace um, drinking uh, some hot chocolate, I think it is, out of a thing with it, with a you know on his on his roof terrace, and then it basically the conceit is that he goes to all of the materials that are in that picture, uh, including things like galvanized steel, mm-hmm. uh, ceramics, chocolate, 
um, all the various glass, um, um, and he looks exactly at why they behave in the way they do, how they were discovered or invented, um, right. and it's a, it's a real mind blower. It's super beautifully written as well, very uh, like puppyish enthusiasm for his subject matter. Um, you know, a lovely guy. It sounds wonderful. I mean, it seems that it would be almost impossible to look at the history and the sort of origin and the source of all of these products and things we use in today's world and not find yourself in some ways in sort of political waters, describing where things came from and power grabs and no? No, not really, not in this particular case. Okay. Um, it's one of particular interest to me, Stuff Matters. Oh, I've got a feeling that I've heard of this book. It's one of those books which is just so cram-packed. Like, there's a book by, who's the guy that, um, Bill Bryson, he wrote the, his, the short history of just about everything, didn't he? Is it yeah, one of those sort good. of books? Yes, exactly. Which crammed. Yeah, crammed with great ideas, great, great insights. In fact, you know, the, the book that, that, um, that he wrote called The Body was also very good. Okay. Bill Bryson, I mean, that was a good book, very interesting. Similar kind and of book. Is, and this, his name, just pronounce his name again? It's Mark Miodovnik, I believe. Mark Miodovnik, fantastic. Alex Belos, Alex in yeah. Numberland. There, this guy's basically like a, a uh, like a, a smart maths whiz kid, and he wrote a book in which he talks about his enthusiasm for numbers, uh, which is for me initially was an extremely unpromising starting mm. point. Maths yeah. was really my. I'm more of a words guy than a than a numbers guy, mm -hmm. um, but this book absolutely fired uh, my imagination. Like he talks about how numbers operate, how they work, how they were, how mathematical principles were discovered, and how they operate in nature. Um, it's an absolute um, gem of a book, um, and particularly you know, given that I don't have any natural interest in mathematics necessarily. I think it's you know a testament to the books, uh, to the way that he's put this thing together that I was uh, blown away. I love that. That's another virtue of a great writer, isn't it? Somebody that can make something very difficult and complicated, very accessible to the layman who has got no experience with that particular subject. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the things that he says in the book was that the, the way that the reversion to the mean um, principles were discovered. It was by a, a French uh, mathematician. Basically, he developed a, this idea that uh, his bakery was shortchanging him on the kilo of bread that he was buying, and so he he bought a kilo, like a kilo loaf of bread every day and weighed it, um, and started tallying up um, the data, and found that in fact, on average, it was pretty much exactly a kilo. But from that, uh, from that action, from that obsession, he basically developed a mathematical uh, principles or a theory that is still in use for in, in, in the world of insurance, for example, today. Wow. Interesting. Well, yes, um, it sounds interesting. Sounds like one that I will take a look at. Does it discuss the mystery surrounding prime numbers at all? Yes, it does, I believe. Yeah, um, I don't really know the intricacies or the nuances of this, but apparently there's some real sort of grey areas with prime numbers still. Yeah, it's a, it's a definitely worth reading. You know, it's, I'm not the ma mathematician, um, you know, but but this book really made it uh, super interesting and super clear as well. You know, and it tells some great stories about how 
mathematicians discovered stuff and how they came up with stuff and how it, how it's applied in the real world as well like how oh, nature I love that sort of stuff like how nature um you know how many petals there are on a stem uh, and there are there are fixed principles in nature that are you know basically found within maths yeah and it's like a formula that goes throughout the universe that sort of stuff yeah Exactly. Yeah, I've seen some really interesting documentaries about that, definitely. That's a good one. Alex Bellos, Alex in Numberland, great stuff. And then last but not least, and I can't believe we've got to the end of this list of books, and I really hope you'll you'll come up with another one in future, but Rutger Bregman, Humankind. Yeah, so this is a Dutch um, journalist, um, science writer, who um, who I think became quite well-known. I, I realized this afterwards. He was the guy that started berating people at Davos a few years back about the fact that no one was talking about tax avoidance. Um, and the, he was like this young, very relaxed Dutch, yeah, pretty young guy, um, mm. you know, berating these titans of industry that they should be focusing on making everyone pay their fair share of tax rather than on all the other stuff, all the highfalutin stuff that they were talking about. And so, but he wrote this book, which, um, which was recommended to me by someone in my company. And basically, uh, it, it chimes very much with my own view of humanity, which is the basic principle of this book. The basic thesis is that man is good, that humankind is, that people are good. Um, and it goes in a quite a polemical way through all the evidence for that thesis. And so it looks at all the, the instances of uh, all the stories about uh, research into how people are capable of great evil um, the, you know, for example, the, the Stanford uh, torture experiment, everyone knows that people were, set in, were, were, were given access to a lever and told to turn the lever to mm. dangerous levels and, and, you know, risking that the people on the other side of the, of the glass, you know, would be permanently uh, damaged by this. Um, but it turns out that actually the, the experiment was set up in a completely, uh, completely fake way. Yep. Uh, didn't really tell anything about the motivations of the people turning the lever. Um, and so he goes to all of the things that you've heard about uh, Lord of the Flies, uh, all of these other things that, that, are, that work on the principle that man is evil and needs to be kept in check. Controlled, yep. Controlled. And, you know, and his thesis is that people love to do stuff. They have, they're enthusiastic about uh, stuff. They're creative. They generally want the best for their fellow uh, human being. Um, and then he goes through a lot of the research around that. And it's a little bit on the polemical side, and I wasn't 100% convinced of the science behind it. But as a, as a cry, as a, as a philosophical treatise, as, a, as an idea, like an entertaining romp through the idea, it worked very well. And I, and I totally agree with it as well. Nice. Do you think humans are kind in essence? I do. I do. I really do. I think people are good. I think things are getting better. I think uh, humanity is an amazing species and I really hope we don't, <laughs> we don't kill ourselves before we reach our full potential. But do you not think, do you ever think that maybe we've passed the apex of humanity, human civilization in terms of obviously, you know, we can fight disease better than ever before. And we've got all this incredible technology, but it seems to me that we've through that, we've lost so much as well. Well, I think it's. I think that if you were uh, a starving peasant in, uh, you know, in 12th century uh, Holland, then you probably have a different perspective on that, right? Your kids survived adulthood. Everyone gets to go to school. You know, there's enough to eat. 
um, all these diseases that would kill you like a like a bad tooth um, you know is now nothing but a, a quick visit to the dentist and some pills right so things are getting better and better more and more people are reaching their potential like people are getting taller um, you know in a sustained way because because the genetic expression of people's physical bodies is is, is being reached because people get enough food to eat mostly um, things that I, I really do think that things are getting better. And I think that a lot of the doom saying is uh, just lazy thinking, really. Mm. But I mean, more people die of overeating than undereating these days. Does that not speak to a, uh, a human race that's maybe going in the wrong direction? Yeah, you know, I prefer people to die <laughs> of overeating than of, than of starvation. Right? I mean, because you can do something about overeating. I mean, that's obviously, it's a never ending battle to perfect the human race. But, you know, the, the thing that we need to do is, you know, harness technological pro, progress and make sure that, uh, you know, societies are organized in a fair and equitable way. Um, and I think we can do it. We need to be managed properly, don't we? We need proper infrastructure in place so that we thrive rather than just end up fighting each other. Yeah, you know, I'm all in favor of the great all-seeing computer deciding on on the big questions of the day, right? Uh, you know, a, a technocratic elite that that executes that. But you know, I think that also there needs to be um, a stronger, more robust defense of democracy, where people um, take their responsibilities as citizens more seriously and don't necessarily look to you know a quick fix. Um, or just blaming other people, the blame culture. You know, we can do so much more to take responsibility for ourselves and our own impact on the world, can't we? Yeah, exactly. And that's what this book, Humankind, um, really, you know, puts out. It says if we, I mean, one of the things that struck me about this book is, and it kind of rings true, is that if you expect a good things from people, then that's what you're going to get, right? But if you go assume into... positive set, intent. Yeah, assume positive intent. Assume that people want the best. Assume that people, uh, you know, love their children and want their fellow citizens to, to, uh, to, to prosper. And I think that if you take the opposite approach and, and act as if people are mindless animals that need to be uh, corralled into, into you know, a, a web of laws and restrictions and so that they don't revert to their primal you know, instinct to evil, then I think if you treat people as, as evil, then you're much more likely to, to, to see that as a result. Mm, really good point. I also like the domino effect of positivity. I've always found that if I, when I'm in a chipper mood and I'm nice to other people, it seems to spread outwards. Whereas if you're nasty, then the, the person you're being nasty to can often end up being nasty as well. It's a domino effect. Well, honestly, you're one of the most positive people I've ever met. <laughs> um, and I love you. So, you know. <sighs> the natural high. Follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club or go straight to the website, thenaturalhighclub.com. And remember to subscribe to the Natural High podcast through whichever platform you're listening to get every new pod straight to your phone.